continuing in Galatians, and today we're going to look at uh, chapter 2. There are several issues in 2 that confront us, and two of the issues then are, they're interrelated, and that is justification, the word, you know, the, the concept, and authority. Um, and in fact, I think we could reduce the two things to one thing. Who's in charge here, you know, uh, or who, what is in charge here? Or to state it differently, what is the relationship between the law and the gospel? But the way that Paul is going to have to work this out, it's not an abstract idea, you know, like uh, he's going to deal with this theoretically. Because it's a very concrete idea, because it relates to his own relationship then to uh, the Jerusalem Council, to his own past Judaism. Uh, And so he has to tell his own personal history, his own story, his confrontation with Peter, his, you know, he goes through this because I, I think because he's never talking about some abstract issue, but rather... Uh, the two things are always related, the issue of justification and authority. And he's concerned then with how they regard his authority as an apostle, and with that then, the authority of the gospel. I mean, that's really what's at stake here, the authority of the gospel he preaches. So the issue is immediately tied up with how the issues, though, of his authority is tied up with the folks in the church, how you folks going to get along they're splitting up, they're dividing over, you know, Jewish uh, uh, Judaizers have come in and are trying to get them to go back and observe the food laws, observe circumcision. There's a singing group in Japan, uh, and I, I, they sing in very poor English. So this is one of the few rock singing groups I can quote. Uh, but it sort of gets at what we're talking about here in Galatians. Hey, mommy, where is my shoes? Hey, mommy, where is my clothes? Hey, mommy, where is myself? Please, somebody, won't you tell me what is most important? <laughs> uh, somebody tell us. You know, and I think that's what Paul's saying here. What is most important? And to straighten out what is most important, and this is not an easy issue. He's going to have to straighten out the issue of authority. And so he's going to nuance this in a very interesting way. You know, if you ask who's in charge, and he's talking about the Jerusalem council. He's going to talk about Peter and James. And so he tells the story again in in Galatians 2 uh, about, you know, he went up uh, to talk to Peter and James. And in relating this story, I think we have to follow very carefully his argument because he's not investing final authority in Peter or James or in the Jerusalem council. Um, but rather he's really talking about the gospel as the authority and all of these various groups then in some way derive their authority. You know, if you ask who's in charge, well, God is in charge, but the way that God is in charge is in and through the gospel. And then those, um, you know, uh, who are related as apostles through Christ to the preaching of the gospel that's the way that they derive their authority. 
Now, in Galatians, it's very interesting because it's, it's almost like the issue in Galatians addresses this very uh, modern. You know, modern, we could say there's two Gospels, really, today. There's two kinds of Christianity. Uh, and this is what theological liberalism has taken its departure here. It says, well, there's the Gospel of Peter, there's the Gospel of James, and the Gospel of the Jerusalem Council... And then there's Paul's gospel. And so they're saying, oh, there are these two. And that's precisely, you know, it's sort of strange. That's precisely the argument that Paul is making here. No, there's not two gospels. That there's one gospel. And I think that's why he's retelling, he's re, how, he's retelling how he received this gospel. And that's the, the key point. He says uh, in verse 15, and seven, 15 to 17 in chapter 1, But when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Why, you know, what's important in this story? Well, I think the key thing, he's saying, I didn't receive this gospel from men. I received this gospel from God. And that lineage, that line means I'm an apostle. We apostles received the gospel, you know, uh, from God that... Uh, and he mentions he went once more to Damascus and of course it was on the road to Damascus that he saw the risen Christ that was one of the you know, ideas or the, the apostles were those who had seen the risen Christ and so why is it so important that Paul had not gone up to Jerusalem I think because he's arguing that his authority or more accurately he's not really he's arguing for the authority of the gospel which he preaches has not been handed down by men. Paul never just argues for his authority for authority's sake. In other words, he's trying to accomplish something very practical among these people. So he's saying, I'm an apostle, but he's making the point by showing that he's going to tell them something that is going to bring unity where there is division. And so then he mentions, you know, both Peter or, uh, you know, Cephas is just another name for Peter, and James, the brother of Jesus. If you had to pick two leaders in the early church, these would be the two guys. You know, James becomes, we think, the head of the Jerusalem council, maybe because kind of a Jewish idea that he was the brother of Jesus. And Peter is generally considered, you know, the, the lead chief apostle in some way. And he says, I went up for 15 days and I talked to them. So in... Uh, in uh, 1 18 to 20 then three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days he remembers this very well but I did not see any of the other apostles except James the Lord's brothers now in what I'm writing to you I assure you before God I am not lying that is this is this story is very important to Paul because the authenticity of what he's, the gospel he's preaching, depends upon how he got it. And also then the fact that he's received affirmation, 
But that's not the, you know, from the apostles, but that's not the final thing. And then he says, after he had been preaching some time in established churches, then he went up to Jerusalem again. We have this recorded, the Jerusalem Council in Acts. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And why is Titus important? Because Titus becomes kind of the test case here of the gospel that Paul is preaching to the Gentiles. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ in order to bring us into bondage and of course that's what he's afraid is going to happen to the Galatians right now uh, that they're going to be put into bondage again they're going to be divided and division is always bondage I think we need to remember that but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Paul is the most steadfast one, you know, in this. You remember, even Barnabas, he says, caves in and says that, okay, I'm with Peter, maybe we shouldn't eat lunch with the Gentiles because they're going to have their crab supper, you know, they're going to eat things that are forbidden to Jews. And so two things happened. In Jerusalem, they affirmed that Paul was correct in his preaching. And then he talks about these false brothers and he distinguishes between this. That is, we're not to submit to these false teachers. Now, Paul then is in Galatians 2 going to make a serious argument about the nature of justification. And I, I use that word and I think we get. We, our eyes glaze over and think, oh, okay, here we go abstract again. That's not what Paul means when he says this word righteousness or justification. He means, are you people going to eat together or not? That's, in other words, if you're made right, that's not some abstract idea, but it's the idea that you're going to be able as a community of people to bring together Jews and Gentiles. And for Paul, that is then the marker of reconciliation, of people being made right. So it's not so much the law court, but it's the dinner table that Paul is concerned with. Uh, we could, you know, we could talk about this in, in several ways. There, we, there's two realms involved, but that's even to put it that way. He's going to talk about justification in terms of an outward realm. You know, you're gonna you're gonna get along with other people, and he's going to talk about it in terms of an inward realm. But I don't think he's dividing this up. What's the sign that you've been made right in your heart with God? Well, you can see it. In the way that you eat dinner. You can see it in the way that you're reconciled as a body of people.
So, and that's the idea, that the, the, the idea of being made right, is that division is overcome. Dividedness. We are divided in sin. I think we could just say sin is dividedness. And that's the way he'll talk about it in both Galatians and uh, Romans, that he's going to talk about an inward and outward dividedness. But those are not two separate things. Those are really one thing. Divisions within and divisions without. But unity then will bring us to wholeness. So this is not about the lines of human authority ultimately. It's really about the authority of the gospel and the power of the gospel and the freedom that we have that will be seen in making these divided people one people. We all start out, I think, as divided people. We're divided within. We're hostile to God. We're hostile to other people. And we're even hostile to ourselves. You know, we're masochistic. Um, So these Jews and Gentiles who are divided, Paul is going to say, you're going to be brought in to harmony. And that's the sign. That's the power of the gospel. There is the authority. The problem the Galatians face is, I think, the problem we face in our reading of what Paul is saying. I believe there are false brethren among us. That is, in Christianity. Who would spy out our liberty in the way that we would, uh, you know, I think that the very reading of Galatians is key here. What would the false brethren among us do? They're going to give us a false reading of the book of Galatians and Galatians chapter 2. And the way they're going to do this is going to say, oh, this is about the law court. This is about some abstract notion of justification. This is about fear and punishment. None of that is here in Galatians. And if that's the way you read Galatians, I think then we will miss that the real world gospel which gives us real world freedom, freedom within and freedom without, we're going to miss that. Now, I I think we could describe this. I'm going to use some words here, and it's not the words aren't important, but the concepts that go with them. You know, there's two ways of reading the gospel. And Paul's telling them, here's my gospel. One way is to talk about sin in terms of, you know, what has Christ done for us? Has he given us a real world expiation of sin that has really delivered us in the present tense? Or has Christ given us a theoretical propitiation? That is, that in some way there is an imputed righteousness. And by imputed, you know, it's kind of a legalistic righteousness. Even the word faith, you know, that how, and, and this is going to come out in Galatians 2. What is faith? Is faith something that you do mentally? You trust objectively? You say, oh, I trust in Jesus. I have a real strong mental power. That's not what the, the word is actually faithfulness. Are you going to be faithful? to the gospel. That is, you're going to live this thing out. It's a real world participation. It's not an objectified thing. 
Uh, and the other, of course, is that do you make this purely an individualistic thing, something that you do privately? No, that's not the topic here. Paul's talking about a corporate, holistic relationship. So man is, you know, in, in picturing the atonement and in picturing what's happening, Paul is saying this is something that really gets worked out in your lives, in the way that you relate to other people, the way that you eat lunch, the way that you, you know, uh, eat food, the way, whether you're circumcised or not circumcised. And this is the picture, this is the word expiation, that there's a real world deliverance from division, from alienation. And faithfulness, then, is the real world proof is in the pudding You know, if somebody asks you, tell me, prove Christianity to me. How would you do that? Well, I think the way that Paul would do it is not through some abstract philosophical argument or some... No, Paul is going to say the proof of the authority of the gospel is in the power of delivering us from dividedness, from alienation. I'm purposely not using the word sin there because I think we missed the point. Sin is just dividedness. Sin is alienation. Sin is a violence towards our God, others, and ourselves. So God's righteousness, his good news, he's making things right. He's the righteous one. He makes things right. This, is, this picture is that Christ is in a real world sense victorious over Satan, over the powers of evil. Uh, you know, this is uh, actually uh, John presented on uh, Irenaeus. Irenaeus' concept of sin is that we're deceived. I think that's right out of Paul. We're deceived. And ironically, these Judaizers are continuing to be deceived in the same way. What's the deception that's been put upon us? That life is in the law. Right? That's the, that's the mistake. That Paul is arguing against in both Galatians and Romans. There is no life in the law. You can be circumcised. You can keep the food laws. Life is to be found in God. Life is to be found in the gospel, the word of God that he's given to us. And so to go back, I think that false teaching always does the same thing. It always divides us. And so, in Peter's case, you can either you stay in the Jew plus Gentile family of the Messiah, or you erect again the wall of Torah. And that's what Paul is saying Peter is doing. But there will be a notice, he says, you know, on your side, you've broken the gospel. You've broken with me. Uh, You recently have been living like a Gentile, Paul says, not like a Jew, and now you're trying to get Gentiles to live like Jews. Paul says you're confused, Peter. And Paul's telling this story about what had happened in Antioch because the same thing is about the churches are being devastated by these false teachers. And so for Paul, justification, being made right, was something that happened in the Messiah. The status the Christian possesses is possessed because 
of being belonging to the Messiah, incorporation into the body of Christ. You see it. You know, you don't have to, we don't have to get theoretical about what justification is. No, it's right here in front of us in the unity of the body of Christ. What's the restoration movement about? What's the restoration plea about? It's about unity. That's what, you know, the whole movement is. That's what Galatians is, unity. Apart from unity, we do not have the body of Christ. And so, in some way, and I don't think we create this unity, but Galatians, this was our sermon last time, Galatians, and I think that what we do, is to preserve the unity that is given to us in Christ. Now, Paul is in no way advocating that the Jewish religion or the Jewish faith is in some way superseded. You know, this is Lutheranism. This is Calvinism. That we have the law and then we have grace and the law stands over and against uh, grace and grace against the law. And so, no, what he's describing is that there is now a new marker of who God's people are. The marker previously was being ethnically Jewish, keeping the food laws, being circumcised. But now the marker is those who are in Christ, those who have been baptized, those who are living in the body of Christ. So Judaism was never, you know, when we say works of the law, when Paul uses that phrase, it was not what can I do, you know, to earn my way to heaven. That was never a, a Jewish understanding. But rather, uh, what must I do in order to show that I am one marked out for heaven right now? So a gospel focused on you know, going to heaven and escaping hell, hell, it's neither true to the Old Testament nor is it true to the gospel. Righteousness denotes the status enjoyed by God's one true family. Now composed, Paul says, of both Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus the Messiah. And so the law court metaphor behind the language of justification and of the status righteousness, which someone has when the court has found their favor, the way that that shows itself is in the sense of membership in God's people. Here it is. We've been declared righteous, but... That righteousness is an evident righteousness. So when God, you know, think here, does God ever do something? When he speaks, is it just a theoretical speech? He's declared us righteous. Does that mean, oh, well, theoretically you're righteous. God speaks, you know, let there be light. Let there, you know, when God speaks, his mighty speech act they bring about a real world result. So too, when he declares us righteous, we are truly made righteous. And just as the light appears, you can see this righteousness. So the earth awaited Yahweh's justice. And Israel, as keeper of the law given at Sinai, already in a sense enjoyed that. That is what they are pointing us to that. It consisted not in you know modern legal jurisprudence but in keeping or restoring right relations 
the you know in or James McClendon I can't remember uses the word right wising uh, between each and his neighbor between each and God right wising relationships uh, things are made right they were wrong there was alienation and thus Jesus reading of the law found its ultimate principle embedded in the commandment to love God. And with it to love neighbors. There it is. It's all summed up. So there's distortions today of the same type that we find even in the New Testament. Distortions of justification. James, you know, in in, uh, the book of James combats the notion that justification by faith can in some way exclude the real restoration of right relationships which he calls good works. Is that any different than what Paul is saying here? No, same thing, right? So this is people pit James and they say, oh, look, James is for good works and Paul is not. No, Paul is talking about the works of the law. But he's also talking about right relations. James, rooted in Jewish wisdom lore, You know, justification, faith, right relations with God and neighbor are an inseparable monad, inseparable part of one another. And the lack of any one of them is the lack of all. You cannot have faith in your head apart from doing something, apart from works, good works. There's no such thing as an evil Christian. Right? You know, let's get over it. You can't be evil. You know, this is what the, 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 the we, we keep encountering this. People think Christianity is this theoretical faith they can, they can have. Uh, I was, I was, we, Faith and I were at Barnes and Noble the other day, and I always do my eclectic reading at Barnes and Noble. And I picked up, there's an army chaplain who was the chaplain to the guys who were the Nazi war criminals that were either going to be hung or were going to be, you know, imprisoned. And he was their chaplain. First of all, it's funny, they all, they're, they're good Lutherans. And he's dealing with these guys who are war criminals, committed genocide, and they're good Lutherans. Is there something wrong with their Christianity? Yeah, it's not Christianity, right? They need to be converted. I think that people that can be evil or that have a Christianity that allows them to be evil, they're not Christians. Let's just get it out there. Let's say it. You can't be both things. Evil, Christian. That's that's what Paul is fighting here. You can't treat your neighbor like dirt and not, you know, eat lunch with them, not have anything to do with them. And so that's what James is fighting. That's what Paul is fighting. The distortion that you know, Paul encounters, he says this in Romans, why not persist in sin so that there may be all the more grace? Shall we sin that grace may abound? It's the same idea. Oh, well, if Christianity is a theoretical idea. And the more we sin, the more God forgives us. And the more grace we get is given to us. But no, Paul says, God forbid. That's blasphemy. 
We do not persist in sin so that there may be grace, but there is a radical inbreaking of the news of Christ in both history and in our social aspects. And so this is what Paul is correcting in both Galatians and Romans. The perverse gospel of those who make salvation other than worldly, you know, this world being made right, and righteousness, you know, that is something we can see. The proof is in the pudding kind of righteousness. And those who talk about a kind of theoretical righteousness, whether it's the, where the heirs of Luther and Calvin, you know, this imputed righteousness, but this is pervasive. Uh, in Christian churches. It's just pervasive. That is sort of evangelical Christianity. And I think that's why I can't be an evangelical. Because there's just this understanding of a kind of split, of a kind of dividedness. A kind of attachment to a reformed Christianity. Of the same order of those who mistake a theoretical, you know, this is uh, circumcision, right? If you're circumcised, Well, theoretically, you're made right. No, that's, Paul says we're beyond that, that we have now, in a real world sense, been made right. Others have divided, you know, this indivisible thing by extrapolating from justification, you know, that we have a kind of fictitious righteousness through the court acquittal. And so the law court, yes, Paul uses law court metaphor, but he ties that then to the dinner table metaphor. And this is, this is the important thing. For Paul, righteousness is conceived of a, yes, we're made united. And this has cosmic. See, eating at the dinner table together has, is of cosmic significance for Paul. It's of social significance. Because these larger d- dimensions then are all brought together in the notion of righteousness. Um, so Peter by coming and preaching that he's not going or, or demonstrating he's not going to eat is in, in fact saying to ex-pagans if you want to be part of the real family of God you're going to have to become Jewish and Paul then says no you don't become a Jew to become a Christian you don't join the ethnic community of Jews But Jews and Gentiles have been called out of their ethnic communities. This was our discussion today. They've crossed borders, right? And been brought together. Let me read this verse as a conclusion. And this verse, of course, takes us to a whole other sermon that I'm not going to do today. Everybody say, oh, good. Uh, (laughs) But it gets at then... The, the idea of this being made right. Paul says in 2, 19 to 20, I have been crucified with Christ. That is this thing here of, and he's going to use the same language of being divided against himself. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, that is, I'm living this thing out. It's an embodied thing. I live by faith fullness in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and that's the model that we all follow. Let's sing our hymn of it.